Hello again to the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. With me is Jared Riddick from Book of Mormon Central. Glad to be here. And again, we're joined by our wonderful guest, who is the... Are you the editor-in-chief of BYU Studies? Yeah, yeah. That mainly means cheerleader-in-chief. <laughs> the technical editing is done by smarter people than me. Yeah, well, either way, you oversee it. So this is Stephen Harper, again, who we had in our last episode on... This, I'm not even going to say the whole title. You have to give the whole title because you have it. It's really, uh, really long. An interesting account of several remarkable visions and of the late discovery of ancient American records by O. Pratt, Minister <laughs> of the Gospel. <laughs> All right. So we're going to continue with part two. And to kind of set that up, we're going to delve into some essays that were written by Oliver Cowdery that were tapped to, as a source yeah. for this. Uh, Elder Pratt, yeah, goes back to uh, Oliver Cowdery's. Uh, eight letters that were written to W.W. Phelps and published in The Messenger and an Advocate. The years escape me. 1835, mainly. 1835. We'll turn to Brother Harper for some, <laughs> some background on that. We hope to be actually be featured doing a full series on these letters and uh, in, in future episodes. Yeah, I, I hope I can do them justice. I don't have a whole lot nice to say about them because, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I want all, every bit of information I can get from Oliver Cowdery. And he has this ponderous style where he keeps promising me he's going to tell me stuff and then mm -hmm. doesn't. <laughs> and so it's a, they're frustrating letters for me to read. And uh, they are full of really great stuff, wonderful stuff that we don't have anywhere else. He talks uh, at great detail about Joseph Smith's attitude and thought process as he went to the hill where mm -hmm. the plates were buried for the first time. And that's a terrific picture we get from Oliver. So I don't mean to be completely critical of him. He, he gives us enough information that we can understand Joseph's thinking then there in terms of the treasure-seeking subculture that he's part of. Mm -hmm. And we can see how Joseph grows out of that under Moroni's tutelage, right? It's not surprising that at the time he thinks that all he has to do is have courage and appease the the guardian spirit of the treasure didn't get it, right? He's understanding this in, in terms of the world he's been living in. And Moroni takes the job of mentoring him into the role of, of a prophet, a, a seer revelator of the Book of Mormon. But it takes a few years to get that job done. And one of the best windows we have into that is Oliver Cowdery's letters. He's really great as well on the restoration of priesthood, right, by John the Baptist. There's a a footnote at the end of Joseph's History and the Pearl of Great Price, where we've got an excerpt from one of Oliver's letters. I love that's like one of the little known treasures of uh, yeah. of scripture right there. Wonderful stuff, but again, really ultra wordy, right? Joseph Smith can say in one, you know, one hundred words what it takes five hundred. Reminds Oliver me to of say. Tom Clancy a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. So I love love Oliver's letters. Um, they're rich sources of info. They they give us a lot of scriptural passages that Moroni taught to Joseph Smith. Uh, it's hard to know sometimes what to do with this stuff. You know, how does Oliver know what he knows is mm -hmm. a crucial question that historians want to ask. And he only can know these things from Joseph Smith. So how reliable is that transmission of knowledge? It's hard to triangulate Oliver's claims sometimes. There are sometimes other sources, you know, Orson Pratt's uh, interesting account, for example, is uh, another source that we can sometimes use to triangulate. So is Joseph's mother's memoir, Joseph Knight's autobiography. So sometimes we can 
gain confidence in Oliver's letters by comparing them to what Joseph and others have said. Sometimes he's the only source we have of things, so we, we want to be a little careful how we use them. His letters, in my judgment, have been mis, misused or sort of made to say more than they can actually bear about mm-hmm. Book of Mormon geography. Certainly, Orson's interesting account does, does a similar thing. He, he gets into great detail mapping out uh, the geography of the Book of Mormon, going well beyond what he knew or what anybody could know, what we know still today. Mm-hmm. He really is setting out a complete, bold, hemispheric vision of the Book of Mormon. Right. And that was actually the vision I was taught when I was younger. I remember sure. being taught, it was the, yeah, it was the Nearnick Land, is the Panama, and the, right. it was I, bigger than I the Roman Empire. It, right? Yeah. I assumed it. Do we want to go into a little bit more detail there? The Jaredites were in North America. Yeah, he has uh, and, the Jaredites landing on the uh, eastern seaboard and uh, settling North America and completely depriving it of lumber, he says, which I don't think, uh, I can't think of the term, actually. What's this? That's a lot of lumber. It's a lot of lumber. <laughs> I get, and there, what's the field of science that studies plants? Lumberology. Botany. And college, botany, or bot, yeah, bot, botanists might disagree with that, with the, uh, the uh, age of uh, forests, because he, he says that the uh, North American forests are repopulated by the migrating Nephites. Interesting. The Nephites land on from the Pacific. Dendrochronology. Yeah, dendrochronology. Yeah, so it was recently a paper on an interpreter, I believe. Oh, cool. that dealt with that, specifically with volcanic eruptions and how we can use that to date. That. But yeah, um, he has the Nephites landing in, South, in uh, South America on the West Coast, which he would later say to be uh, Chile specifically. So yeah, he establishes this bold vision that he would continue to elaborate on as he continued yeah. on as in his service as an apostle. Well, one of the great sources for this document is the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that they talk about how the geography played into later, I guess, discussions from Orson Pratt on his evolving views of geography. So mm-hmm. what he's writing here is, is clearly just what he knew at the time, mm-hmm. what he understood at the time, I should say. Yeah, and it's really fun to see the evolution of his views as, uh, as he continued through his service. Yeah. And there's a, a few fun things in here. I really, I'm very fond of Joseph hiding the plates in a barrel of beans as he yes. goes to his father-in-law's. I fondly remember the old seminary video where they portrayed that. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm delighted in that little with, detail. Yeah. <laughs> with, the, with, of course, the classical acting of, of, uh, of that film department in the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> no offense to any of them who may be listening. But... <laughs> Yeah, there's just he uh, uses he does a, a great summary of the Book of Mormon in here, um, largely dependent on an earlier tract by his brother Parley. That's the best part, in my judgment. It's a fantastic, fast-paced, yeah, uh, a summary of the power of the Book of Mormon. Right, the mm-hmm. the redemption story uh, of the Book of Mormon. It's that's his best work. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. And I gotta love that it's like a thirty-something page tract, like. I don't know that we'd ever get anybody to read 30 pages as a tract. <laughs> Our nowadays. attention spans have faded. <laughs> it's very unfortunate. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go into part two then, a reading of part two. And uh, stay tuned for part three, where we'll go into the last little bit of this tract that goes over what we might call principles and of the articles of faith. and mm-hmm. Our proto articles of articles yeah, of faith. Yeah, kind of how that maybe seeded a little bit, that, that whole Wentworth letter. Uh, but stay tuned. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you later. An interesting account of several remarkable visions and of the late discovery of ancient American records by Orson Pratt, published in 1840. This is part two of three.
Although many more instructions were given by the mouth of the angel to Mr. Smith, which we do not write in this book, yet the most important items are contained in the foregoing relation. During the period of four following years, he frequently received instruction from the mouth of the heavenly messenger. And on the morning of the 22nd of September, A.D. 1827, the angel of the Lord delivered the records into his hands. These records were engraved on plates, which had the appearance of gold. Each plate was not far from seven by eight inches in width and length, not being quite as thick as common tin. They were filled on both sides with engravings in Egyptian characters and bound together in volume as the leaves of a book and fastened at one edge with three rings running through the hole. This volume was something near six inches in thickness, a part of which was sealed. The characters or letters upon the unsealed part were small and beautifully engraved. The whole book exhibited many marks of antiquity in its construction, as well as much skill in the art of engraving. With the records was found a curious instrument called by the ancients the Urim and Thummim, which consisted of two transparent stones, clear as crystal, set in two rims of a bow. This was in use in ancient times by persons called seers. It was an instrument by the use of which they received revelation of things distant or of things past or future. In the meantime, the inhabitants of that vicinity, having been informed that Mr. Smith had seen heavenly visions and that he had discovered sacred records, began to ridicule and mock at those things. And after having obtained those sacred things, while proceeding home through the wilderness and fields, he was waylaid by two ruffians who had secreted themselves for the purpose of robbing him of those records who had secreted themselves for the purpose of robbing him of the records. One of them struck him with a club before he perceived them, but being a strong man and large in stature, with great exertion, he cleared himself from them and ran towards home, being closely pursued until he came near his father's house, when his pursuers, for fear of being detected, turned and fled the other way. Soon the news of his discoveries spread abroad throughout all those parts. False reports, misrepresentations, and base slanders flew as if upon the wings of the wind in every direction. The house was frequently beset by mobs and evil designing persons. Several times he was shot at and very narrowly escaped. Every device was used to get the plates away from him, and being continually in danger of his life from a gang of abandoned wretches, he at length concluded to leave the place and go to Pennsylvania, and accordingly packed up his goods putting the plates into a barrel of beans, and proceeded upon his journey. He had not gone far before he was overtaken by an officer, with a search warrant, who flattered himself with the idea that he should surely obtain the plates. After searching very diligently, he was sadly disappointed at not finding them. Mr. Smith then drove on, but before he got his journey's end, he was again overtaken by an officer on the same business. And after ransacking the wagon very carefully, he went his way, as much chagrined as the first, at not being able to discover the object of his research. Without any further molestation, he pursued his journey until he came into the northern part of Pennsylvania, near the Susquehanna River, in which part his father-in-law resided. Having provided himself with a home, he commenced translating the record, by the gift and power of God, through the means of the Urim and Thummim. And being a poor writer, he was under the necessity of employing a scribe to write the translation as it came from his mouth. In the meantime, a few of the original characters were accurately transcribed and translated by Mr. Smith, which, with the translation, were taken by a gentleman by the name of Martin Harris to the city of New York, 
where they were presented to a learned gentleman by the name of Anthon, who professed to be extensively acquainted with many languages, both ancient and modern. He examined them, but was unable to decipher them correctly. But he presumed that if the original records could be brought, he could assist in translating them. But to return, Mr. Smith continued the work of translation, as his pecuniary circumstances would permit, until he finished the unsealed part of the records. The part translated is entitled The Book of Mormon, which contains nearly as much reading as the Old Testament. In this important and most interesting book, he could read the history of ancient America, from its early settlement by a colony who came from the Tower of Babel at the confusion of languages, to the beginning of the 5th century of the Christian era. By these records, we are informed that America in ancient times has been inhabited by two distinct races of people. The first, or more ancient race, came directly from the Great Tower, being called Jaredites. The second race came directly from the city of Jerusalem, about 600 years before Christ, being Israelites, principally the descendants of Joseph. The first nation, or Jaredites, were destroyed about the time that the Israelites came from Jerusalem, who succeeded them in the inheritance of the country. The principal nation of the second race fell in battle towards the close of the 4th century. The remaining remnant, having dwindled into an uncivilized state, still continue to inhabit the land, although divided into a multitude of nations, and are called by Europeans the American Indians. We learn from this very ancient history that at the confusion of languages when the Lord scattered the people upon the face of the earth, the Jaredites, being a righteous people, obtained favor in the sight of the Lord and were not confounded. And because of their righteousness, the Lord miraculously led them from the tower to the great ocean, where they were commanded to build vessels in which they were marvelously brought across the great deep to the shores of North America. And the Lord promised to give them America, which was a very choice land in his sight, for an inheritance. And he swore unto them in his wrath that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God where they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them, and they were fully ripened in iniquity. Moreover, he promised to make them a great and powerful nation, so that there should be no greater nation upon all the face of the earth. Accordingly, in process of time, they became a very numerous and powerful people, occupying principally North America, building large cities in all quarters of the land, being a civilized and enlightened nation. Agriculture and machinery were carried on to a great extent. Commercial and manufacturing businesses flourished on every hand. Yet, in consequence of wickedness, they were often visited with terrible judgments. Many prophets were raised up among them from generation to generation, who testified against the wickedness of the people, and prophesied of judgments and calamities which awaited them, if they did not repent, etc. Sometimes they were visited by pestilence and plagues, sometimes by famine and war, until at length, having occupied the land some fifteen or sixteen hundred years, their wickedness became so great that the Lord threatened by the mouth of his prophets to utterly destroy them from the face of the land. But they gave no heed to these warnings. Therefore the word of the Lord was fulfilled, and they were entirely destroyed, leaving their houses, their cities, and their land desolate. And their sacred records also, which were kept on gold plates, were left by one of their last prophets, whose name was Ether, in such a situation that they were discovered by the remnant of Joseph, who soon afterwards were brought from Jerusalem to inherit the land. This remnant of Joseph were also led in a miraculous manner from Jerusalem in the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, 
They were first led to the eastern borders of the Red Sea. Then they journeyed for some time along the borders thereof, nearly in a southeast direction, after which they altered their course nearly eastward until they came to the great waters, where, by the commandment of God, they built a vessel in which they were safely brought across the great Pacific Ocean and landed upon the western coast of South America. In the eleventh year of the reign of Zedekiah, at the time the Jews were carried away captive into Babylon, another remnant were brought out of Jerusalem, some of whom were descendants of Judah. They landed in North America, soon after which they emigrated into the northern parts of South America, at which place they were discovered by the remnant of Joseph, something like four hundred years after. From these ancient records, we learn that this remnant of Joseph, soon after they landed, separated themselves into two distinct nations. This division was caused by a certain portion of them being greatly persecuted because of their righteousness by the remainder. The persecuted nation emigrated towards the northern parts of South America, leaving the wicked nation in possession of the middle and southern parts of the same. The former were called Nephites, being led by a prophet whose name was Nephi. The latter were called Lamanites, being led by a very wicked man whose name was Laman. The Nephites had in their possession a copy of the Holy Scriptures, vis-à-vis the five books of Moses and the prophecies of the Holy Prophets down to Jeremiah, in whose days they left Jerusalem. These scriptures were engraved on plates of brass in the Egyptian language. They themselves also made plates soon after their landing on which they began to engrave their own history, prophecies, visions, and revelations. All these sacred records were kept by holy and righteous men who were inspired by the Holy Ghost and were carefully preserved and handed down from generation to generation. And the Lord gave unto them the whole continent for a land of promise, and he promised that they and their children after them should inherit it on condition of their obedience to his commandments. But if they were disobedient, they should be cut off from his presence. And the Nephites began to prosper in the land according to their righteousness, and they multiplied and spread forth to the east and west and north, building large villages and cities and synagogues and temples, together with forts and towers and fortifications, to defend themselves against their enemies. And they cultivated the earth and raised various kinds of grain in abundance. They also raised numerous flocks of domestic animals and became a very wealthy people, having in abundance gold, silver, copper, tin, iron, etc. Arts and sciences flourished to a great extent. Various kinds of machinery were in use. Cloths of various kinds were manufactured. Swords, scimitars, axes, and various implements of war were made together with head shields, arm shields, and breastplates to defend themselves in battle with their enemies. And in the days of their righteousness, they were a civilized, enlightened, and happy people. But on the other hand, the Lamanites, because of the hardness of their hearts, brought down many judgments upon their own heads. Nevertheless, they were not destroyed as a nation. The Lord God sent forth a curse upon them, and they became a dark, loathsome, and filthy people. Before their rebellion, they were white and exceedingly fair like the Nephites, But the Lord God cursed them in their complexions, and they were changed to a dark color, and they became a wild, savage, and ferocious people, being great enemies to the Nephites, whom they sought by every means to destroy, and many times came against them with their numerous hosts to battle, but were repulsed by the Nephites and driven back to their own possessions 
not, however, generally speaking, without great loss on both sides, for tens of thousands were frequently slain, after which they were piled together in great heaps upon the face of the ground, and covered with a shallow covering of earth, which will satisfactorily account for those ancient mounds filled with human bones so numerous at the present day, both in North and South America. The second colony, which left Jerusalem eleven years after the remnant of Joseph left that city, landed in North America and emigrated from thence to the northern parts of South America, and about four hundred years after, they were discovered by the Nephites, as we stated in the foregoing. They were called the people of Zarahemla. They had been perplexed with many wars among themselves, and having brought no records with them, their language had become corrupted, and they denied the being of God. And at the time they were discovered by the Nephites, they were very numerous and only in a partial state of civilization. But the Nephites united with them and taught them the Holy Scriptures. And they were restored to civilization and became one nation with them. And in process of time, the Nephites began to build ships near the Isthmus of Darien and launched them forth into the Western Ocean, in which great numbers sailed a great distance to the northward and began to colonize North America. Other colonies emigrated by land, in a few centuries, the whole continent became peopled. North America at that time was almost entirely destitute of timber, it having been cut off by the more ancient race who came from the great tower, the confusion of languages. But the Nephites became very skillful in building houses of cement. Also, much timber was carried by the way of shipping from South to North America. They also planted groves and began to raise timber, that in time their wants might be supplied. Large cities were built in various parts of the continent, both among the Lamanites and Nephites. The law of Moses was observed by the latter. Numerous prophets were raised up from time to time throughout their generations. Many records, both historical and prophetical, which were of great size, were kept among them, some on the plates of gold and other metals, and some on other materials. The sacred records also, of the more ancient race who had been destroyed, were found by them. These were engraved on plates of gold. They translated them into their own language by the gift and power of God, through the means of the Urim and Thummim. They contained an historical account from the creation down to the Tower of Babel, and from that time down until they were destroyed, comprising a period of about 3,400 or 3,500 years. They also contained many prophecies, great and marvelous, reaching forward to the final end and consummation of all things, and the creation of the new heaven and new earth. The prophets also among the Nephites prophesied of great things. They opened the secrets of futurity, and saw the coming of Messiah in the flesh, and prophesied of the blessings to come upon their descendants in the latter times, and made known the history of unborn generations, and unfolded the grand events of ages to come, and viewed the power and glory and majesty of Messiah's second advent and beheld the establishment of the kingdom of peace, and gazed upon the glories of the day of righteousness, and saw creation redeemed from the curse, and all the righteous filled with songs of everlasting joy. The Nephites knew of the birth and crucifixion of Christ, by certain celestial and terrestrial phenomena, which at those times were shown forth in fulfillment of the prediction of many of their prophets, notwithstanding the many blessings with which they had been blessed. They had fallen into great wickedness, and had cast out the saints and the prophets, and stoned and killed them. Therefore, at the time of the crucifixion of Christ, they were visited in great judgment. Thick darkness covered the whole continent. The earth was terribly convulsed. 
The rocks were rent into broken fragments, and afterwards found in seams and cracks upon all the face of the land. Mountains were sunk into valleys, and valleys raised into mountains. The highways and level roads were broken up and spoiled. Many cities were laid in ruins. Others were buried up in the depths of the earth, and mountains occupied their place. While others were sunk, and waters came up in their stead, and others were still burned by fire from heaven. Thus the predictions of their prophets were fulfilled upon their heads. Thus the more wicked part, both of the Nephites and Lamanites, were destroyed. Thus the Almighty executed vengeance and fury upon them, that the blood of the saints and prophets might no longer cry from the ground against them. Those who survived these terrible judgments were favored with the personal ministry of Christ. For after he arose from the dead and finished his ministry at Jerusalem and ascended to heaven, he descended in the presence of the Nephites, who were assembled round about their temple in the northern parts of South America. He exhibited to them his wounded hands and side and feet, and commanded the law of Moses to be abolished, and introduced and established the gospel in its stead, and chose twelve disciples from among them to administer the same, and instituted the sacrament, and prayed for and blessed their little children, and healed their sick, and blind, and lame, and deaf, and those who were afflicted in any way, and raised a man from the dead, and showed forth his power in their midst, and expounded the scriptures, which had been given from the beginning down to that time, and made known unto them all things which should take place, down until he should come in his glory, and from that time down to the end, when all people, nations, and languages should stand before God to be judged, and the heaven and the earth should pass away, and there should be a new heaven and new earth. These teachings of Jesus were engraved upon plates, some of which are contained in the Book of Mormon, but the more part are not revealed in that book, but are hereafter to be made manifest to the saints. After Jesus had finished ministering unto them, he ascended into heaven, and the twelve disciples, whom he had chosen, went forth upon all the face of the land, preaching the gospel, baptizing those who repented for the remission of sins, after which they laid their hands upon them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Mighty miracles were wrought by them, and also by many of the church. The Nephites and Lamanites were all converted unto the Lord, both in South and North America and they dwelt in righteousness above three hundred years. But towards the close of the fourth century of the Christian era, they had so far apostatized from God that he suffered great judgments to fall upon them. The Lamanites at that time dwelt in South America, and the Nephites in North America. A great and terrible war commenced between them, which lasted for many years, and resulted in the complete overthrow and destruction of the Nephites. This war commenced at the Isthmus of Darien and was very destructive to both nations for many years. At length, the Nephites were driven before their enemies a great distance to the north and northeast, and having gathered their whole nation together, both men, women, and children, they encamped on and round about the hill Cumorah, where the records were found, which is in the state of New York, about 200 miles west of the city of Albany. Here, they were met by numerous hosts of the Lamanites and were slain, and hewn down and slaughtered, both male and female, the aged, middle-aged, and children. Hundreds of thousands were slain on both sides, and the nation of the Nephites were destroyed, excepting a few who had deserted over to the Lamanites, and a few who escaped into the south country, and a few who fell wounded and were left by the Lamanites on the field of battle for dead, among whom were Mormon and his son Moroni, who were righteous men. 
Mormon had made an abridgment from the records of his forefathers upon plates, which abridgment he entitled The Book of Mormon, and being commanded of God, he hid up in the hill Cumorah all the sacred records of his forefathers which were in his possession, except the abridgment called the Book of Mormon, which he gave to his son Moroni to finish. Moroni survived his nation a few years and continued the writings in which he informs us that the Lamanites hunted those few Nephites who escaped the great and tremendous battle of Cumorah until they were all destroyed, excepting those who were mingled with the Lamanites, and that he was left alone and kept himself hid, for they sought to destroy every Nephite who would not deny the Christ. He furthermore states that the Lamanites were at war with one another, and that the whole face of the land was one continual scene of murdering, robbing, and plundering. He continued the history until the 420th year of the Christian era, when, by the commandment of God, he hid up the records in the hill Cumorah, where they remained concealed, until, by the ministry of an angel, they were discovered to Mr. Smith, who, by the gift and power of God, translated them into the English language by the means of the Urim and Thummim, as stated in the foregoing. Thank you for listening to an interesting account of several remarkable visions and of the late discovery of ancient American records by Orson Pratt. This has been part two of three. Please stay subscribed for the final in this three-part series with our guest, Stephen Harper. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions podcast by Book of Mormon Central. Thank you.